The Spiel is sponsored by TimeWellSpent.org. We would like to remind you that any time spent playing games is time well spent. From their padded cell in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is The Spiel, episode 39, Changelings. So hi there, and welcome to The Spiel. My name is Stephen Conway. And I'm David Coulson. We've got kind of an interesting episode here. It was actually spurred on by a listener who we had the the good fortune to meet and play games with here recently, uh, Simon Wilcock from Great Britain, of all places. Traveled all the way across the (laughs) pond just to play games with Stephen and I. Yeah, Yeah, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) The mecca that Indianapolis is just drew him in. No, not really. (laughs) He was here on business and, and called us up, and we were like, heck yeah, let's get together and play some games, but we, we let him pick some games off of the list and play with us, and kind of an interesting little connection that uh, Simon right, <laughs> was kind of playing the, the back shelf spotlight with our with list, list games. Right. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was great that he found like games that had been changed from earlier versions of the game. One had been a board game and was now a card game, and one was a card game and was now a board game. <laughs> so we've got uh, Kalis Magna Carta. Started came- off as a board game, got turned into a card game, and then Blue Moon City. Was a card game and now is a board game. So Pretty darn cool. Oh, and then that, that theme's going to kind of overspill into other aspects of right. the show as well in terms of just... It, it's funny how once you pick something like that, you kind of begin to look at games in a different way and can kind of find things that, that fit that. That idea, so look forward to other changeling yeah. games and exactly. ideas of change. And then yeah. we got we got some real classics yes. in the back shelf spotlight, yes. so that's gonna be pretty cool. <laughs> so I think maybe we should just jump right in and get going. Game news and notes. Welcome to News and Notes, everybody game that I am super excited about, and it's a game that is a game in a series. Surprise! (laughs) (laughs) And that game is Key Harvest. Now, Key Harvest is published by R&D Games, but it's going to be distributed in the United States by Rio Grande Games, um, in Germany by Abacus Spiele, and in France by QWG. If anybody recognizes (laughs) QWG, that's the company that's making the master print games that are ultra cool, that are all, all the art is done by Mike Doyle. So their particular game is going to be called Demetria, but it's going to be the same game as Key Harvest. So Key Harvest is designed by Richard Breeze. It's due out in October. It's for two to four players, ages nine and up. Retails for 50 bucks. You're going to be able to find it online for between 30 and $40. So before we look real quick at Key Harvest, a quick history of the Key Series oh, good. for anybody who doesn't know. <laughs> I was going to ask you that if you didn't, <laughs> weren't going to provide Excellent. <laughs> the Key Series started way back in 1995 with the game Key Wood continued into 1998 with Keedom, and Keedom was the game that was redone for us here um, by Rio Grande game called Aladdin's Dragons. So Keedom and Aladdin's Dragons, same game, different theme. And that was in 1998. In 2000, Key came out. In 2002, Key Thedral. And now finally in 07, we have Key Harvest. So 
five games in a series. Um, I like the games that I've played so far in the series. That's what makes me really interested in this one. The other thing that makes it neat is usually Richard has a limited print run of his games that are released at Essen, and that's it. And so they're kind of hard to get for a couple years until somebody picks them up and prints them. Well, this one, Key Harvest, from the get-go, obviously you can hear, is going to be distributed by many companies all over the world. So we're going to get this thing wham-bam right when it comes out. We're not going to have to wait for it. That's cool. <laughs> That's a good thing for us <laughs> stuck over here in Indiana. <laughs> exactly. So a quick peek. What um, makes this interesting to me are some of the mechanics. Each player has their own country board, and you're going to be uh, trying to acquire um, field tiles and lay them in such a way so that they're grouped. And at the end of the game, your largest group is going to be worth one point for each tile in that largest group, but your second largest group is going to be worth two points for each tile. So that's kind of cool. You're going to want to obviously not just focus on having this one huge group, but you want one almost as big as that tailing right behind it, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Seems really neat. I like the things that Richard Breeze does. So this just is really exciting. Has a good pedigree, I would say. Absolutely. absolutely. Track record with the other key games. It certainly. I could totally understand why that's pretty high on your uh, radar there. (laughs) Excellent. So check that out. Hopefully in a few months here, we're going to be able to get a hold of Key Harvest. So uh, in keeping with the kind of Essen... (laughs) Ooh, did you say in keeping? (laughs) Ooh, in keeping. (laughs) Yes, I did. (laughs) That pun wasn't even intended either, darn it. (laughs) So uh, I have another news... uh, related note that has a little bit to do with Essen um, and has to do with the whole change kind of theme as well. Uh. <laughs> so um, some of you may know and be very familiar with the GIPF project. Uh, for those of you who are not, the GIPF project is this series of six games, abstract strategy games. GIPF is kind of the, the linchpin. And there are these other five games that sort of orbit around it. The GIPF project is, a, is one abstract game, but you can sort of stop uh, you can play these potential tiles that will make you go, okay, I challenge the move that you're making in GIF. We're To decide that challenge, we're going to go off and play one of these other five games, and the winner of that game determines what happens on that central abstract board. That's that's about as quick, you know, <laughs> scattershot, you know, snapshot example as I can give you to what GIF is all about. It's a great abstract series of games. We thought it was done. Well, I guess it's not quite as done as we thought. It's never over till the fat lady sings, <laughs> yeah. baby. So Chris uh, Berm, the designer of the GIF series, has decided to take one of the games out of the GIF project and put a new one in. Now, the, the bad, that's bad news for lovers of Tomsk, which is the one that's being removed, but not quite as bad as you might think, because Tomsk is still going to exist. It's just not going to be part of the GIP family anymore. Um, It's getting the boot, and it's going to reappear as a standalone game uh, with probably a new look sometime in 2008. Now, for those of you who might be familiar with the overall series, Tomsk was the one game with sand timers. The whole game was played with sand timers as your pieces. And when you moved one of your pieces, you would flip it over, and if at any point your sand timer runs out that piece is gone and you just don't have that piece to use anymore. A cool game, but always it's always been questioned as it, to whether it kind of fit the formula of all the rest in that series. Yeah, it just it, it, I thought mechanically it was really interesting, yeah. but it does seem like sort of the black sheep of the GIF a- family. Absolutely. So it's getting the boot, and a new game called Tsar, or T-Z-A-R-A-A-R, um, is going to be the game that's going to take its place, and it's debuting at Essen, uh, this year, not, not just a few weeks away now. Um, so here's just a little bit about Tsar. So both players have 30 pieces that are divided into three types. Six 
uh, six czars, six czaras, and fifteen tots. The three types of pieces form a trinity, and they cannot exist without each other. The aim is either to make your opponent run out of one of these three types of pieces, or put them in a position where you can't capture any more of them. So that sounds very in keeping, yeah. much more in keeping with the other style of the, the GIF series. So the, the interesting thing to note is that there's going to be a limited edition version of the game available at Essen this year, a thousand copies signed and numbered by Chris Berm hmm. um, that are, you're only going to be available at Essen. My hope is since I have waited and waited for an omnibus edition of this darn game, I keep thinking, finally, it's done. They're going to put out a... a you know, all six games in one big box with all the stuff together. <laughs> my hope is finally that's going to be here and uh, I'll be able to just plunk down my money and get the whole gift project at once instead of buying it piecemeal. But That would be cool. This, as soon as I do that, they're going to add a seventh game to the series, <laughs> you know. So so there's my news and notes. So before we move on, we do have the Name That Game contest from episode 38 to resolve. This one proved to be a much more challenging than I think uh, the author of the puzzle, Dave, uh, oh, anticipated. For... <laughs> I got. I got to throw that <laughs> animosity your way. <laughs> Just blame me. Damn it. So we had we had a ton of guesses this time. Right. That was really cool. But <laughs> we had very very few correct guesses. So if you're somebody who over the last week or so received an email that said congratulations, you got to name that game puzzle. You have a very good chance of Absolutely. winning this contest. Absolutely. So remember the prize for this uh, contest was a copy of Vikings. An cur- excellent game. Courtesy of uh, Time Well Spent. So thanks to Time Well Spent for, for, for providing the prize. Absolutely. So be- before we describe this, we should let them yes. go ahead and play it and let them listen to this. So without further ado, here is a listen at the puzzle from last week. Cruciverbalist Exemplification. Okay, now you all know the answer, right? Of course. It was super easy. Okay, so obviously it was cruciverbalist exemplification. Cruciverbalist having two definitions, <laughs> one being the name of somebody who designs crossword puzzles and the other one being somebody who is an avid fan of sol- of solving the crossword puzzles. Um, for our use, we were using the first definition, a designer of crossword puzzles, and exemplification, an example. So a crossword puzzle designer's example. So what's another name for all the examples that a crossword puzzle designer gives you in an attempt to have you solve his puzzle? Those would be clues. So the answer was clue. <laughs> I can, Ouch. I can almost Ouch. hear the anger. <laughs> <laughs> we had so many guesses with Scrabble. They, they right. stopped at Cruciverbal and went, oh, crosswords, it's got to be Scrabble. Well, we've already done Scrabble. I th- think people were thought we were being really cagey exactly. and throwing the same name. That, yeah, no, you know, we're not game. that smart. <laughs> No. <laughs> you give us too much credit. Exactly. So, a uh, pretty simple answer uh, for, I guess, what wasn't a simple puzzle. Either <laughs> that or people are just like, that was stupid. <laughs> the good news is that um, we have a lot of listeners sending in all kinds of um, name that game yeah, challenges that really you cool. guys are going to get to compete in soon because a lot of them are really neat. So yeah. not this not this one coming up, but after this ne- this episode, we've got a whole slew of uh, listener generated challenges that exactly. are going to start popping up here and there. So So I guess we should get the dice out. Yep. Yep. And see just exactly who the winner is. Here it comes. Here's the dice roll. Looks like the winner is Richard, Richard Hunt. Hunt. Congratulations, Richard. Awesome. Great guess. So you're going to win a copy of Vikings again from Time Well Spent. So um, just to remind you, uh, 
there's going to be another Name That Game puzzle in this episode. It's going to appear at kind of a semi-random spot in the episode. The clue will lead you to the name of a game. You send uh, your guesses to either Stephen at thespiel.net or Dave at thespiel.net and try to put Name That Game or something in the subject line just so we know it's easier for us to keep the the guesses separate from every other kind of email that we get. Exactly. And then uh, the puzzle will run the full two weeks between each episode. So listen for that next puzzle coming up hidden sneakily somewhere in the episode. And the prize... Absolutely. Is a copy of Kalis Magna Carta, courtesy of Time Well Spent. So, cool. Pretty sweet prize for for the lucky people who are able to get the the answer correct. So, before we go, congratulations once again to Richard Hunt, a copy of Vikings. Awesome. The List. Over a decade ago, we took up the challenge of playing every unplayed game in our collection. Each week on the Spiel, we play one or two games off our unplayed list. The list started over 100 and has been as low as 30, but we're at peace with the fact that we'll probably never get to the end. After all, life would be awfully boring without new games to play. Let's see which games get crossed off the list. So the first game off the list is the game that was a card game, and now there's this board game that's sort of given rise from the card game, and that is Blue Moon City. It's originally published in 2006. Reiner Knizia was the uh, designer. Fantasy Flight Games and Cosmos are the publishers. Uh, Two to four players, and it plays in about an hour. There were actually, uh, just as a little side note, there were actually um, two little mini-expansions available for the game that were released in two different places. They were each two-tile Expansions, and we'll get to how that affects the game in not great detail. But um, I'm I'll glad I don't that own later. that game because I would have to have those. <laughs> so one of the um, one of the expansions was available in Spielbox magazine, and the other one was available in this uh, thing called Der Kinesia Almanac. Um, and they introduced four different tiles: the hospital, the meeting hall, the theater, and the golden shrine. Three of these tiles actually gave extra abilities for simply landing on tiles, which. That'll become apparent why that's yeah. important and different in gameplay. Um, there are also, I'll mention, uh, some good player aids available on Board Game Geek in a multitude of languages, um, which is very helpful if you're just learning how to play the game, especially if you're listening to us and trying to figure out the game, too. Uh, Blue Moon City also won the Meeple's Choice uh, Award in 2006 and was a nominee for the Spiel des Jahres uh, in 2006 as well. So definitely it was a lot on a lot of people's notable games for uh, 2006. Here's just a little bit of flavor text to kind of give <laughs> you the, the sense of the, of the game. And this fits in with the Blue Moon card game as well, which is sort of this science fictional game that involved, uh, revolved around uh, the battle over Blue Moon City. So this is kind of, you can kind of see it as kind of a thematic sequel in that sense. So the Dark Age is over. The royal heirs whose infighting and pride caused the destruction of Blue Moon City have fled. The corrupt advisors and courtiers who whispered into their ears have been banished. The bitter division between the peoples of Blue Moon is beginning to heal. So now is a time of harmony and hope. In the spirit of that harmony, you must work together with the people of Blue Moon to rebuild the city and win favor among the elemental dragons, thereby becoming the leader of Blue Moon City. Complete buildings, win crystal shards and golden scales, and restore the holy crystal of Psy to unite all Blue Moon behind you. So, really cool. interesting. Yeah. Gives you kind of a nice backstory, especially if you've played the the other game. Kind of see you're seeing the story through to kind of the next chapter, right? In a way. Um, so let's just get into the components here. Um, there are 21 building tiles. 
one obelisk, 80 cards. There are 10 each of eight different races, and these races, again, are the same races that appear in uh, the Blue Moon card game. Um, There are four player figures, which are these sort of little pointy wooden pawns, uh, 40 cubes of the player's color, 40 crystal tokens, 15 dragon scales, and three resin dragon figurines, which are nicely carved and, and look really cool. So it's got some nice goober with the game. Um, I'm going to go into the tiles and the cards in a little more detail just because they sort of affect how the rest of the game is played. And if you understand how the components are put together, the rest of the gameplay is actually pretty darn simple, I think. So the tiles each have an illustration of the type of building under construction. So there's all kinds of different buildings. And in the rules, they even give you sort of a little illustration and the kind of history in terms of the science fiction world behind each of each of the buildings. There's a one, one to three colored and numbered boxes indicating the number of cards that you're going to need to be able to place a cube on that tile to contribute to that building. Uh, in the upper left-hand corner, um, there are two rows of icons. The top row indicates the reward for the player who contributes most to that building. The second row indicates the reward for all players who contribute to that building. The tiles are double-sided as well. So on the back side, it has an illustration of the building that it's now been completed. So the the object of this game is to be rebuilding the city, and so all the buildings are going to go from these half-constructed forms to finish. Not maybe every building, but the majority of them are going to be finished by the time the game is over. So on the back side, there's the completed building and um, another row of icons, which gives you the neighborhood bonus that will be awarded when other buildings around that building are also completed. It'll make a little bit more sense once we get into the gameplay, I promise. Uh, Well, let's move on to the cards. Each card has a color, which indicates the alien race to which it belongs, a numeric value which can be used to contribute to the reconstruction of the buildings, and um, all the cards ranked 1 and 2 also have a special ability which will allow the cards to be used for their abilities instead of for reconstruction during the game. As I've previously mentioned, the alien races and colors are the same exact uh, lineup as the ones that are used in Blue Moon. So we have the Volca, the Terra, the Aqua, the Flit, the Hoax, the Kind, the Mimics, and the Pillar. And each one has really lush illustrations. Just uh, The artwork yeah. is really, I think, pleasing it's, to the eye and gorgeous. I, to, the to, mimic, my, to my the, eye. The Mimics are pretty hot. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely true. <laughs> so the object in Blue Moon City is to make enough offerings to the obelisk based on the number of people that are playing. You have this obelisk that you're sort of buying or contributing gems to that sort of sits at the center, the courtyard of Blue Moon City. If you're playing with two players, you have to have six, three players five, four players four. So less less contributions to the obelisk the more people that are playing. Um, the setup's really pretty darn easy. Um, you're going to lay out all these tiles to form the city. The courtyard is always going to be the center, which is where the obelisk is. And there are four temple buildings that extend off each side of the courtyard. The rest of the building tiles are just going to be random, randomly shuffled up and distributed in a 4x4 four four grid that's sort of minus a tile in each corner of the grid. So it sort of looks like a kind of cruciform board a little bit or a four, or just kind of a square with notches cut out of it. Um, You start all the players with their markers in the center of the courtyard, eight cards to each player, the dragons start off the board, and the dragon scale pool is going to vary according to the number of people who are playing. Each turn in Blue Moon City has three phases. Movement, contribution, and then discard and draw phase. Movement's just 
dead simple. You can move zero, one, or two spaces um, to adjacent tiles, not diagonal, so only orthogonally. Um, you can change your direction, so you could move in sort of an L shape and go one and then change direction. Um, only You can only move once per turn. That's at the beginning of the turn. And you can share the same tile as another player. So that's phase one, moving your, moving your dude. Uh, phase two is the contribution phase, and this is really kind of the meat of the game. Um, you can either contribute to the building of a building, or you can make an offering at the obelisk, which is, after all, the name of the game. You're, you're trying to get these diamonds or contribute your, your cubes to rebuild this obelisk in the center of the town. But the majority of the game is going to be around making contributions to the buildings. So you let's say you've moved your tile out to one of these tiles. Remember, there are little boxes that have a color and a number at the bottom of each tile. There's usually one, two, or three of these boxes. You can contribute to the building of that building by discarding cards that are equal the total of one of those numbers in the boxes as well as the color of uh, the box that's indicated. So if you go to a red five, you need to be able to discard cards, t- red cards totaling five in order to do it. Pretty darn simple. If you do that, you take one of your cubes and you put it on that red five to indicate that you've, you've contributed to that building. Um, you can build on the squares out of order. So you don't have to start with the lowest number. If you have the five, which generally the more the higher numbers are at the left-hand side of the, the little row of, of boxes. And you can build on multiple squares on the same tile in one turn. So if you had, you know, uh, if there were two twos, let's say two red twos, um, you could put two red ones down and put one cube on. And then let's say you also had a red two just by itself. You could lay it and put another cube on. Um, You can never split your values between two things. So you couldn't play a red four and split, go, okay, two for that one and two for another one. And you never get change back. So you can always overpay, but you're never going to get change when you're contributing to the buildings. It's pr- that's pretty much how the the con- contributions go, but we'll you'll see how the game becomes a little more complex when you understand how the special abilities the of the cards can affect how and why and where you might want to build. Now, when a building, all the little boxes are filled up, that building is going to score. Um, so when a building is completed, um, that's when the scoring is going to happen immediately, and you're going to flip that tile over to the completed side. All the players that contributed at least one cube are going to receive the items that are below the top row. So everybody gets that. The person that contributed the most, in other words, the person with the most cubes uh, on that building thing, are going to get the bonus, which is the top row of icons. So you might get four crystals for being the one who completed and having the most, and then everybody else gets two crystals just for joining in and, and helping along the way. In the cases of a tie... The person who has the cube farthest to the left on the tile is going to be the one who actually gets the bonus. Um, so uh, you're going to basically there are three different things that you can get. You can get the crystals, you can get dragon scales, and you can get more cards, which all three are very useful. The crystals are the currency that you're basically going to turn in to try to build onto the obelisk, which is the name of the game. The dragon scales will. Uh, could be an avenue with which you could get more drag, uh, more crystals later in the game, and the cards, obvious, are the way you're going to contribute to the building. So they're all good, and you're going to get different combinations of them. The only additional thing to mention about the scoring and the building tiles is if you complete a building that has completed buildings around it, orthogonally, that are connected by the sides, 
you're going to get a neighborhood bonus. Remember, if you flip the tile on the back, there's an icon or a row of icons on there. Anyone who contributed to that building that's being completed is going to also get those bonuses, which can really, as the game progresses, make the, the make for a mother load of crystals and cards <laughs> and scales at different points during the game. Um, so that's really the meat of the game is you're going to move your tile, move your guy out, and you're going to play cards to try to contribute to the building tiles. Uh, the other thing that you can do in the contribution phase is make an offering to the obelisk. Your dude has to be in the center in the courtyard tile. The obelisk has little numbers on it, and you contribute your crystals that you're going to accrue from having helped build all these buildings. You pay your crystals in order uh, in the number on the obelisk. So if you want to buy the number seven, you have to have seven crystals to contribute. You can only do it once per turn unless you have cards that allow you to do it more than once. Finally, after you've done the moving and the building or the offering, so just to make it clear too, you can either build or you can make an offering. You're never going to ever be able to do both in one turn. After you've done those two things, you've reached the end of your turn, basically. You're going to discard zero, one, or two cards, and then draw cards equal to the number of cards you discarded plus two. So if you don't discard any, you're going to get two cards. If you discard one, you're going to get three. If you discard two, you're going to get four. And then it's going to be the next person's turn. Game pretty much flows from there. Um couple items of note before we just open up the floor to <laughs> wider discussion. The, the dragon scales um, need a little further uh, illustration. So there are two ways that you can get dragon scales. Remember those little dragon figurines that I've yet to mention um, that are also in the card game but are also in the board game here? Um, if a dragon figurine is on the building... Um, when you contribute to it, then you get to take a dragon scale for each dragon figurine that's there. So if there's one, you get one dragon scale. If you manage to get all three to the spot where you're contributing, you're going to get three dragon scales. The only other way you're going to get them is as a prize for uh, contributing if it's on that row of icons at the top of the, the tile. Now here's how the dragon scales score. When the last tile, when that dragon scale bank basically is empty, you're going to look and see who has the majority. The person who has the majority is going to get six crystals. The, everybody else, if you have at least three dragon scales, you're going to get three crystals. But you have to give all your dragon scales back to the bank, and the whole process is going to start over. If you have less than three, you get to keep your dragon scales, and you, but you don't get any crystals for them. But it gives you a little bit of a leg up to maybe score right. the next time around. Lastly, uh, the game might seem a little overly simple until we get to this last part, which is really what gives the game, I think, a lot of flexibility and a lot of added strategy, are the card's special abilities. They really create the... the the real strategy in the game, I think, and, and give you a ton of flexibility in deciding where you want to move and how you want to contribute on a given turn. So there are kind of three ways that the card's special abilities break down. Some of them help you in movement. So you could play one or more gray cards for the special ability uh, to fly your piece to any tile or to move your pieces extra spaces. Um, you could play one or more red, black, or blue cards for their special ability to move those dragon figurines, either to bring them onto the board, specifically to where you are, or to move them already on the board a certain number of spaces. Uh, so that's how they can affect movement. They can also affect the contribution. In the contribution phase, you can play one or more pairs of the brown cards, um, and they count as a wild card of value three. 
So you can see that that could be very valuable if you're trying to contribute to that, you know, blue five. It might be hard to get without using those wild cards. Um, there's also white cards that have the special ability of being able to change the color of one or in some cases up to four cards of one color into a different color. So you need to get onto that black tile, but you only have green cards. You might be able to use a special ability to just do the switcheroo and change those colors. Again, change with the change mm-hmm. here. Lastly, in the contribution, there are green cards that are just wild that you can use as any. The only drawback to those is they're all value one. Finally, um, the gold cards can actually help you in the building of the obelisk. So if you have one of those gold cards, its special ability is you can actually contribute more than once per turn to the building of the obelisk. And remember, if you're playing like a four-player game, you only need to make four contributions to that obelisk to win the game. So if you time it out right and have that gold card with the special ability, you could play that special ability card and wham, you know, either rocket into the lead or maybe win when everyone thinks you're behind, that kind of gives you a, a sense of how these cards can affect play. It's not just as straightforward as, oh, I need a blue two, I'm going to play my blue two. In some cases, you might be lucky enough to be able to do that, but the cards give you a lot of flexibility to do interesting and funky things and open up the game in a way that uh, make the game not quite so straightforward as it might otherwise seem. Um, the last thing I'll say before, Dave, you can haul forth here is that my one real knock on the game is just the lack of integration of this great Blue Moon theme into the actual gameplay. It seems like it was a marriage of convenience to me that you could have, this could have been Reiner Kinesi as anything. And that that's a common knock on many Euro games is that the theme seems pasted on. I wouldn't go so far as to say it seems pasted on here, but it feels like it, there's a missed opportunity that with all this backstory, and they have these little paragraphs of written up stuff about each of the buildings, and yet it doesn't really come into play or affect the game in any way, shape, or form. And that's just a shame that they couldn't find a way to find things that could connect to the theme mechanically instead of it just seeming like, well, hey, we've got Reiner has this new game, and we already have the Blue Moon world. Why don't we just set it there? To me, it seems like that. It doesn't affect my enjoyment of the game. The game is really a fun balance of strategy with the cards and um, randomness and not knowing what someone's going to be able to do. You can't go, oh, well, they're over there. There's no way they can get over this side of the city and finish off this building before I can get the advantage. Um, so I'll shut up, Dave. What, what do you What do you have to say? I like the plastic dragons. <laughs> No, no, this was this was a really cool game. Um, I'm just wondering if I just since I didn't read the rules you were talking about um, thematically, um, I wondered the races. I believe kind of the abilities they have in the board game here kind of reflect some of the abilities that they had back in the card game. But if you didn't play the card game, how would you know any of that existed? Yeah, you know the background of specifically. You know why this race provided this particular mechanic or this particular ability. Mm-hmm. So, so I definitely agree with with the thematic thing. Uh, what's really cool is the card play that you've already discussed. It's it's almost like a CCG 
just minus the deck building because specific all these combinations is what you're looking for you know just a handful of cards that may look at first look like at first that this is completely worthless just need you to put on your thinking cap a little bit and go oh wait i can use this to change this which makes two of this so i can add it to this other color which when i play this card i can change the color of all of them it's just like (laughs) but it but it's really really cool I, i wonder if anybody's come up with wacky versions where they might have multiple decks and they're allowing players to construct their own, oh, you know, yeah. their own decks to draw from. From because that is the heart of the game is the how the cards work in concert with each other in such a myriad of ways that it's going to be new every time. Every time you draw cards, your whole hand is going to go, "Ooh, now I can do this," mm-hmm. you know, versus the last time. So it's the card play is is awesome. The um, the actual contributing to building the buildings, I think Simon kind of caught on to this really early. Is you kind of want to have a foot in each camp. Yes. You know, rather than feeling like you need to win absolutely everything, which is, of course, what I tried to do. But if you have just kind of like a foot in each camp, like I said, you can let other people finish them. Because on each turn, like Stephen said, you can either contribute to that um, – the building, the, the what is that called? The, the obelisk. The obelisk. Thank you very much. You can either contribute to that or finish or help finish a building. So if you're finishing a building, you're not contributing. But if somebody else is finishing all the buildings, you're still getting stuff. Mm-hmm. And now you don't have to waste your time finishing buildings. You can just walk up there and when, contribute away to the obelisk. So when that's some, pretty cool. In some cases, the resources that you get when it's not your turn, can help you do something on your turn as well. So you might get extra cards or things that actually aid you when it gets around to your turn. That's a great point. It seems very Kinesia-esque, if that's a word. Absolutely. In that, you know, finishing second in a lot of places is often... I mean, you want to finish first in a few, but if you can finish second in a lot of places, that puts you really kind of a leg up um, than just focusing on a couple big, meaty ones. Exactly. And I I love the sub-game of the the uh, dragon scales. Yes. Always keeping an eye on the pool of dragon scales and who has how many because the second they're gone, you're going to have that little mini scoring which may give you just put you over the top with crystals. So when it scores as far as player turn order and who has what is is actually can be pretty important. When I like how one person, I mean you have to have the simple majority to get that big bonus, but someone else could just try to tie with you just to eliminate that bonus and say, "Okay, we're all just going to go up the same because everybody else ties ends up with the three crystal bonus." And, and that happened quite a, quite a bit where, you know, the two people with the most dragon scales were tied, so they ended up getting no more benefits than all the other people with just at least 3. It's more it's more of a challenge. You have to be really committed to kind of getting that right. majority, I think. That than it might first appear. <laughs> so I, I, I like this game a lot. I, I thought it was pretty... I've, I, like other people, think that it looks a little light, mm-hmm. but once you get in, the card play is interesting enough that um, I would be more than happy to, to play this on you know many occasions. The, the interesting thing note, to note, too, with the expansions is it seems like they're nodding their... They're acknowledging the kind of lack of differentiation and the, the connection to the theme with the expansions. Because... Uh. Three of the four tiles with the expansion add specific abilities to the buildings uh, that make each top building tile, in addition to the reward you get from them, just merely ending your turn on that building gives you a different ability. Like, I think one of them zaps you back to the courtyard. And those are tied in with the type of building that it is, yes, right? Yes, and they're tied Very in. Very cool. And one of them even adds an, a second place that you can contribute to the obelisk. Uh, so now the board can expand in different ways, and you don't always have to be heading back to the middle of the board. Um, so I can see how, I mean, I, I, 
it's hard to call it a weakness, but it's just a, it was a missed opportunity, I would say, right. in terms of just adding that extra layer of complexity that just makes the game that much more rich and, and fun, I think. that You can see they are, they've already understood that and have started to add a little extra bit of flavor there. I, that I, would, I, I, would, yeah. I would seek those out, I think, now that we've played it a couple times and, and look for that. Looking forward to playing it again, I think uh, – would you agree with that as oh, well? Absolutely, yeah. This was neat. <laughs> so I would encourage you to to check out Blue Moon City and especially the the artwork and the the tie in with Blue Moon the card game as well. It's kind of nice to know that if you like Blue Moon City, you could even go backwards <laughs> and look yeah, at Blue exactly. Moon card game. It's a two player card game, but it's it's probably worth a look too if if this one catches your fancy. So first game off the list, Blue Moon City. Uh, my name's Simon Wilcock, a.k.a. Steerpike, and not only do I listen to the spiel, but I'm here in the padded cell, having beaten the boys two games to nil. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Just rub it in. Yeah. <laughs> That's the last time we're inviting you over. <laughs> So, second in the list for this episode is Kalos Magna Carta. It was published this year by Yastari and Rio Grande. It was designed by William Atia. It's for two to four players, ages 10 and up. Retails for $30. You can find it online for between $18 and $24. In Kalos Magna Carta, each player takes on the role of a master builder. During the game, you'll assign your workers to the tasks you deem most important. The resources you gain from your workers' successfully completed tasks will be used to help to construct King Philip's castle. The more, the more you aid in the castle's construction, the more prestige you gain with the king. The game ends when the castle is complete and the master builder with the most prestige wins the game. Kind of fun little story. Might be familiar to some, since, like we said before, this game has a relationship with an earlier game, and that's Kalos the Board Game. In fact, this has a very, very, very similar feel to Kalos, with the exception of just being a little streamlined, um, which some people may be looking for that. So that's kind of neat. Um, the other thing before I start discussing the game, I thought in reading the rules something that was kind of interesting. Um, designer William Atia kind of gives a tip of the hat to Bruno Cathala hmm. for maybe helping him come up with the idea for this little card game. Oh. Doesn't really go into any detail, but just says thanks for Bruno's help. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So let's take a look at the components real quick. Uh, of course, we have a whole truckload of trusty, dusty little resource cubes. you got to have those. In this game, they uh, represent food, wood, stone, and gold. Gold is a wild resource, and so it can be used as any of the others. At the start of the game, everybody gets two wood and two food. Every player gets four workers. These are the workers that you're going to play out um, to hope, hopefully to gain more resources and money and all kinds of other stuff that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, everybody has a passing token, and we'll talk about these in greater detail later. There are castle section slash prestige point tokens, and these, as you build um, the castle, you will get these, and they have points on them that you'll score at the end of the game. There's a provost token that we'll talk about later, and then there are um, dinera tokens, which are the currency of the game, and at the start of the game, everybody gets four dineras, so that's pretty cool. Um, the majority of the components in this game are cards, because it's a hmm, <laughs> card game. Shocking. Exactly. So... 
uh, all in the game, all the cards represent buildings that are going to give you resources and or certain abilities to get money or resources. The important thing to note is that each player has his own deck of cards. There are 12 cards in each deck, and each deck is its own color, so you can specifically tell which cards belong to which players. At the start of the game, um, you'll shuffle shuffle up your deck and then draw three cards out of that deck, and that will be your starting hand. The other important thing is that to know that the backs of your cards actually represent the residential buildings that you may have a chance to attain during the game. So if you hear us talking about those, they're on the back of your cards, which is kind of a cool way to do that. Um, cards that there's one of each of is there are um, a castle, and that card just sets out and shows you how much it costs to help build part of the castle. And there's a bridge card, and that's where you put your passing tokens to show who passed and in what order. Other than that, everything else is building cards. Um, before I describe the actual individual cards, I guess i got to give you a snapshot of what they look like on the board, how you're going to lay them. Um, at the start of the game, there are a number of neutral building cards that are laid out in a row. And these form um, an imaginary road that kind of leads up to the castle that you're building. So during the game, when you play a building card, you're going to add it to the end of this road, kind of extending that road. Now, in the little setup, they show this really fancy schmancy way of organizing your cards, but I was mocked severely <laughs> when attempting to retain... Um, said You're order. You're doing it right. <laughs> he was constantly reorganizing the cards in the road. <laughs> so needless to say, our road meandered around the bo- uh, the table, which is totally cool. It was actually really fun. You, you could tell it was bugging Dave, though, that they weren't lined up. <laughs> I'm like, Simon, damn it. It's got to go in a straight line. Actually, Simon started putting them yeah, in order, too. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. <laughs> Your effect was... Uh, exactly. <laughs> Emanating out from you. (laughs) (laughs) So like I said, at the start of the game, you have a certain number of cards that at least start this road. And then throughout the game, you'll be continuing to build this road by extending at the end of the line. When you said it's the board game itself, too, has that kind of meandering road, too. Exactly. It's meant to kind of... That's exactly what they're trying to do is tie it in with the board. So let's take a quick look specifically at one of these cards. Exactly what does it show you? What is it? The card has several things on it. It's going to show you a cost in resource cubes. That's how much it is to play out to the road, from your hand to the road. There's um, prestige points in one corner. So at the end of the game, if you've played this card to the road, that's how many prestige points it's going to be worth. In the center is a big icon that tells you if you place a worker on here... This is what you're going to get to do, either collect resources, get money, blah, blah, blah. And then at the bottom is a little ability, a secondary ability, that the owner of the card, if somebody places a worker on that, they're going to get this ability just by having somebody else place a worker on that card, which is kind of neat. So those are kind of what the cards are. Uh, So let's go ahead and just look at a standard game turn because it actually plays really easy. Um, Of course, every game round divided into phases. We couldn't have a game round without a crap load of phases. (laughs) That would be unfortunate. So the first phase is the collecting of the income. So everybody's going to get two dinars, and then also you can have a chance to earn other money from your residential buildings or from some of the specialized prestige buildings, which we'll talk about at the end. Our phase number two are the actions. Now, this is the meat of every game turn. This is basically the way it works is on your turn, you're going to get a chance to do one action. 
then the next player has a chance to do an action, so on around the table. When it comes back to you, you can do another action, and so forth, until you finally get to the point where it comes to you, and you don't want to do an action, or you just can't do an action, you pass. Once everybody's passed, we're done with the action phase, and we move on. So let's look at the actions real quick. Um, you can pick a card, which means basically just drawing a card from your deck, add it to your hand. That's one action. You can replace all the cards in your hand, and this is throw all the cards in your hand away and draw a number of cards equal to what you just threw away. A lot of times you have buildings that kind of don't apply to the certain situation we're in right now, and you just change out all your cards. Let's see, there's place a worker on a building. This is probably the most popular one because by doing so, um, in a later phase, you're hoping to gain what that particular building or that card is going to give you. There is construct a building. You can do this in two ways, either by playing a card from your hand to the road, paying the resource cost, or you can build one of those prestige buildings that we haven't talked about yet. There's eight or ten of them. I can't remember exactly how many, but they set off to the side, and they cost quite a bit. Um, one thing in the cost of the prestige buildings that they in the cost is always at least one gold um, resource, so they're a little tougher to play. And you had you have to have a Residence. residential building out on the road for you to be able to play one of these. So they're tougher, but if you can they're play them, they're a worth a truckload of prestige points. So the very last thing that you can do is pass. And in passing is pretty important. There's a card called the bridge card. When you do pass, you put your passing token token on the bridge card. And that is important because all of the phases from this point on, instead of being carried out in player turn order, they're going to get carried out in passing turn order. So sometimes you really want to pass first. Sometimes you really want to pass last. And hopefully you'll see that as we talk about these the next phases. Uh, the third phase is the provost's move. And this is where everybody has a chance to move the provost. So the provost is a little disc that at the beginning of the game, he sits on the last card of the road. And what he does is he kind of wanders up and down the road, deciding exactly which workers can work and which ones can't work. Um, so this is a chance where you have to pay um, dinars to move him up and down. Um, you may want to say, well, I, I put my worker on this car, but the provost hasn't got there on the road yet, so I need to move him a couple spaces down. It's just going to be one dinner for each card that you move him. And an opponent may be like, well, I don't want you to be able to do that, so I'll pay to move him back. So this kind of phase is really fun. It's kind of like a tug of war between everybody trying to move him down the road so more people can do more stuff. Other people going, no, we're not going to do that, and backing him up so people can't do stuff. Uh, Simon was the first one to draw blood in the <laughs> Yes. <laughs> he immediately, somebody did something. I think it vicious. was Francie. It was Francie, and he said, I think I'll play the vicious card here. Yeah. He moved the provost backwards and hosed Francie out of being able to do something really cool. Well, that's where the turn order, too, comes into play. Yeah, if, if you're you, last. If you're last, you get the last say within reason. I mean, if someone, if all three people have moved him back, you can only move yeah, him, what, three, three exactly. forward. Uh, but you can definitely have a, a – you can dictate where that guy ends up to Ab- some absolutely. extent. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so that's the moving of the provost. can be very fun. Um, after that's done, now we're going to settle all the effects of the buildings, just what everybody gets from putting those workers out. So you're going to start at the beginning of the road, and you're going to take one card at a time, and you're going to award um, – 
resources and money and special effects to the people who have played their workers on those cards and to the owners of the cards. You're going to do this one at a time all the way until you get to down to the provost. Now, anything beyond where the provost is, unfortunately, is not going to happen. If you, if you have a worker there, it's just going to be wasted. And hopefully next time you'll be able to get the work or the provost a little farther down on the road. So once you're done with that, now comes the part where you're going to earn the majority of your prestige points, and that's building the castle. To build the castle, you have to give up batches of resources. A batch is described as one of each of the food, wood, and stone cubes. For every batch that you can give, you're going to get to collect one of those prestige point tokens that represents a certain section of the castle being built. The interesting thing here is the castle has to be built in a specific order. The dungeon has to be built first, then the walls, then the towers. The dungeons are worth more than the walls, and the walls are worth more than the tower. So it kind of forces you to want to build early on to get in on some of those more expensive or some of those um, tokens that are worth more prestige. Must be some valuable prisoners or something. I'm thinking, yeah, it's, it's kind of wacky. But so that's how you do that. You just on your turn. Now, this is done in that passing turn order. So unlike the provost where it might be advantageous to go last in this, you want to be able to go first because you're going to be able to have a chance at more of those more valuable tokens because as they run out, you're going to be forced to buy the cheaper one. You know, I mean, the less prestige ones. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely better to go first. Um, As a side note, whoever offers the most batches is going to get a gold resource cube. And these are hard to come by a lot, so this is really cool. After you're done offering um, all the batches and trying to help build the castle, we move on to the end of the turn, and that is simply that the provost is going to advance two cards down the road. If for some reason he's at the end of the road already, no big deal. He just doesn't go anywhere. So you carry out um, rounds like this until a turn in which the last prestige token or that castle type token is gone. When that's gone, you're going to finish the end of this turn and then score all your points. Obviously, all of the little prestige tokens that you've collected are going to be worth the points on them. All the buildings that you've managed to build or lay out to the road are going to be worth the number of points on them. In addition to that, each gold resource cube that you have is worth a prestige point, and each group of three resource cubes other than gold is worth a prestige point, and each three dinars is worth a prestige point. Add them together, most prestige win the game. Pretty darn cool. You know, I just thought of something. It kind of has a funky connection to Blue Moon City. Because you're, like, um, helping to construct the castle by donating these wooden cubes, which is like the exact same thing you're doing in Blue Moon City. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was just about to say that. that, It's a funny... It's all about putting cubes and building buildings this week on the spiel. So, four years down the line, when we do the backshelf spotlight with Kayla's Magna Carta and Blue Moon City, you'll know what the connection is. So um, I'm going to turn it over to Stephen and like let us know what you thought about the game. Well, I thought um, <laughs> you stole my thunder a little bit with, <laughs> with that. But the the other interesting connection I I wanted to point out with uh, Blue Moon City is the the interaction with the cards um, on the board and seeing how putting your workers on certain buildings in in connection with each other um, definitely. there's a strategy to that that it took me a little while to understand that oh i need to put my workers down here because i'll get those resources uh before i it comes around to the point where i might want to use them to to build later on in the game or 
I'll I'll allow myself to get money that I can then use the money to use the special ability on a different card to buy the resource cubes that I need, that there's some really fun card combinations. And the interesting thing is that you're using the card combinations of other people. You always have to be giving something to, to someone else. Maybe right. you didn't reiterate that. And, you know, it's worth reiterating that any time, unless you're playing something on your own building – when you gain something from from that particular building card, you're also giving that that or a similar type ability to the person right. who owns that card. So at some point you might be like, I really want that, but do I really want to give that ability exactly. to the other person too because they might be able to actually cash in more than me from having done that. So, um, And the fact that you can only have one worker per building card right. means that – some of those, if you can see, I think in our game it was meat or the pink cubes. We started calling them spam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think uh, the spam was in short supply, um, and you know the people who went earlier in the turns were quick to jump on the spots where they could get the spam right. cubes, and it made the other people have to scramble to try to come up with different ways of doing things on their turn. I really like that. And the, that the fun thing is. is- since everything is carried out in the order that the cards were laid out in the road, the timing of how you do everything is, you know, if you're like expecting to be able to do a certain action that might have you paying money to get cubes. But if you don't have any money because the action that has you getting money doesn't happen until after the action where you're spending the money, you're kind of hosed. So having to line all that timing issues up is really cool. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, whereas in Blue Moon City, you're kind of in control of a lot of that card combo. You're a bit more at the mercy of how other people have decided to play their cards to try to take advantage of these special abilities and things, which I think even makes it uh, more challenging right. to try to get those combinations work. I figured out one with the gold cubes where I was getting money, paying one to get four gold, and then using that gold to buy or to get four dinars, that was the that was the hard thing yeah. for me to keep then the dinars the separate from to... the, the gold cubes. Which right. the gold cubes, I don't. Did you mention that they're wild? Yeah, that you can use them. Uh-huh. Uh, you can use them as in, any of the other three resources. Other three. So that I mean, that's what makes them exactly you know, really powerful as well. I do have to say, and I'm I'm sure I would get <laughs> I would get messages from Simon if I did not say this. Admit but to it. <laughs> I have not played Kalos. I know that's a black mark on my gamer badge but i just it's not because i don't want to it's not i don't own it dave does and he's i've i've threatened him and he just doesn't comply with my (laughs) threats and we so we i haven't played it dave has played it but i have not played it um so i come at this from a slightly different angle than someone who's played kalis um i thought it played really quickly too that was the other thing that um really impressed me that for for the amount of strategy and depth that there was that it actually played really quite quickly and and i didn't think that it was rushed now i dave does have to come clean on that <laughs> i'm getting ready to i kind of screwed up a rule what's new but and it had to do with the residential buildings and how they're played and everything luckily it wasn't a totally game ruining no not um, thing but uh like we said it's very important to note that the residential buildings can only be used by when you use a lawyer to turn over a building that's already been laid on the road and then when you turn them over, voila, it's now a residence. And now you can build a prestige building on it. Kind of messed that up. <laughs> About halfway through, we figured out that I was stupid and fixed it. And Yeah, it doesn't – I mean it didn't affect my impression of the game. But I can see how those residences, uh, you have to really plan ahead to try to right. get them out on the board. And the minute one of those lawyer building comes comes out, you can see why that would be a hot commodity. Absolutely. To get people to try to get in position to, to get those big point halls 
by the end of the game. (laughs) So one other thing I want to add about this game that I didn't say first is that um, it comes with two different sets of rules. There's a basic set and a standard set. I really, really like this. Obviously, we played the standard game. We didn't mess around with the basic version. But I, I could almost consider this game a gateway game. And a gateway game that is possibly even better than some other ones we've talked about. Because when you're talking about Kalos, that's a gamer's game. You don't just whip this puppy out on people that don't play games. They would be like, what the heck do I do? But this game, the beginner version, is so streamlined and so easy. If you played the beginner game and then jumped up to the standard game of this, you're just a few clicks from Hair's playing <laughs> Kalos. And that's that's saying something because Kalos is a, you know, is a meaty game. It's known as a gamer's game. And if you can use this as a stepping stone to get in somebody into Kalos, I mean, what's next? They're going to play Puerto Rico. They're going to play Power Grid. How cool is that? You know, and you might even take the basic version and do something like strip out the prestige buildings to even make it more ba- I mean, serious stepping stone to some other serious games. I think that's really cool. Now, my question for you, since I am in the unique position, I'll put it, <laughs> of having not played Kalis, how does it compare? Do you feel like, I mean, is it Kalis light in the in a sort of disparaging way where it's, oh, this is the dumbed-down version Absolutely of, of Kalis or something like that? or? You know, just give me your impressions by, on being able to compare the two. By you playing, have by playing this game, you have played Kalos, with the exception of a few, a few small things that just uh, make the game more sophisticated and more challenging. It, it absolutely does not dumb down this at all. In fact, this is a brilliant streamlining of Kalos without losing um, the whole. The whole thing that is Kalos, you know, everything that makes Kalos what it is has not been lost at all. I, th- I think this is wonderful. Now we have to get Kalos out so you can play it, so you can see what I'm Thank talking you, about. Thank you, finally. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I was, I did not, I was hoping this wasn't going to be the dumbed down version. And boy, I certainly don't consider that this that at all so so the essence of the original is is preserved well well represented in this but does it do enough things different that you could see the reason why someone would you know would someone who has Kalis necessarily want to get Kalis Magna Carta or you know absolutely not just because they're completely different games but because they would have different times when they would be appropriate Okay. Like you said, this one is a much shorter game. You want a Kalos-style game that doesn't take a Kalos amount of time? Get this puppy out. You have a group that's not a Kalos group? Get Magna Carta out. So there's definitely a good reason to have both because you're going to enjoy playing both. Okay. And the more time, more if you have both, you're going to have a chance to play a Kalos-type game more often. Well, and especially if it, you say the basic one even has that gateway feeling to it, too. Uh, yeah. That opens it up to an entirely different audience than either one of the two situations you described right. I, as well. So. I guess I didn't tell you the gateway. Imagine Magna Carta without the Prestige Buildings or without the Provost. I mean, how easy would that oh, mean? Yeah. That would be play a card, put a dude out, get effects, kind of collect stuff, buy stuff. Not really that hard. It would play really, you know... Mm-hmm. I just think it would be an awesome stair step up to, you know, some pretty complicated stuff. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to finally removing <laughs> that black mark from my gamer badge and saying, yes, I played Galus. Get off my butt. Simon, I'm talking Ex- to you. Exactly. <laughs> so that's the second game off our list, Kalos Magna Carta. So both of the games that we played off the list this week, Blue Moon City and Kalos Magna Carta, are available at timewellspent.org. Uh, Blue Moon City is available for twenty six seventy five, 
And Kalos Magna Carta, available for nineteen ninety nine. Uh, in addition to these great deals that you can find on some of the games that we're covering here on the show, they have this really cool Dutch auction sale. Yeah, this is fun. The uh, Merchants of Amsterdam sale. So, Dave, you want to get a crack at, at how this works with the Dutch auction here? Yeah, it, it's awesome. They post a game that's actually up for auction, and it has a price. And every day that this game is still in stock, they'll drop that down by 50 cents. And that's Monday through Friday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday through Friday. Tuesday through Friday. Over the weekend, the price won't change. But when Monday hits, it will drop a dollar. And as long as they have it in stock, you can choose to buy it at any time you want. If it hits the price that you're like, that's it, I got to have it. The sweet you, spot. <laughs> you log on and you buy the game and you're good to go. If you're like, ooh, I, I need to wait just for 50 more cents, that's fun too, but... Somebody may buy them all up out from underneath you, and you'll lose out on getting them. So it's kind of, it's it's a great way to create a game out of buying games, you know, from them. And I, I think it's brilliant. So right now, um, as of this recording date, um, Tonhauser is currently the, the the game that's on the Merchants of Amsterdam sale, and I think it just started today. So uh-huh. it's pretty much at their normal price. But so it'll by drop. the Monday that it comes out, it's going to probably be a, a couple dollars or two dollars lower. Lower, and it's just a matter of how low will it go? You know, <laughs> where where do you decide is your sweet spot? You know, if it's a game that you've got your eye on, can you wait long enough, or is somebody else going to sweep in and, and get it? Because they don't, you know, they're not too many games on right. hand so they, exactly. they can sell out in a hurry so um, definitely keep checking back especially you, you might want to bookmark whatever that Merchants of Amsterdam game is and keep looking back because uh, you know they're not going to last too long especially and how long are they going to run the Merchants of Amsterdam Auction thing? Uh, I, I think just from now on. I don't, I don't know that there is a, a not an, an ending date. An okay. ending date for. It. I think this is Excellent. something they're they're testing the waters right now, and um, I think they've had a good response so far. And as long as people are enjoying it, I think they're going to continue it for for quite a while. Yeah, I think it's a hoot. Speaking of continuing, they, as I indicated on the last episode, um, the shipping deal is actually continuing through uh, the end of October. Okay, as Excellent. well. So that one, if you remember, uh-huh. is. $150 orders, free shipping. Um, it's only domestic United States, sorry, international uh, people. You can still order, just uh, don't get the shipping deal. But $150 orders within uh, the United States, uh, you can get free shipping. So good time to sort of load up on on a lot of the games maybe we've been talking about. Exactly. If piqued your interest. And a lot of stuff comes out in October. So oh, yeah. yeah. That- <laughs> With Essen, Essen coming up here, there's going to be a, a mother load of, of fun stuff coming out. And we're certainly looking forward to talking about it, too. Exactly. <laughs> so thanks again to Time Well Spent. And hope you'll check them out. Remember, uh, helping our sponsors helps the spiel, too. So thanks to, to Time Well Spent. Backshelf Spotlight. These games need some love, and we're going to give it to them. The Backshelf Spotlight shines on those games that may have slipped past your attention. Classic games, rare games, obscure games that you may not know about, but you should. If you're looking to branch out and try something new, this would be a good place to start. So we have the connection contest resolved from episode 38. For those of you who don't remember, the connection is between Odin's Ravens and Mamma Mia. And we actually had someone who crawled inside our brains and actually mm-hmm. got the mystery connection this time. Congratulations goes out to Scooter B23. Awesome. <laughs> His uh, posting on the Spiel forums. Remember, that's where you go to, to write your guess as far as the connection between the two games on the Backshelf Spotlight. Um, he came up with the right one. And, of course, the right connection is 
memory, and thought. Awesome. Now, let me explain. <laughs> so, uh, Hugin and Munin were a pair of ravens that are associated with the Norse god Odin. Hugin and Munin travel throughout the world bearing news and information back to Odin. Uh, Hugin is thought and Munin is memory. They're sent out at dawn to gather information and return in the evening. They perch on Odin's shoulders and then whisper the news of the world to him. And it's one of the reasons why uh, Odin's often referred to as the raven god as well. A little backstory. <laughs> so how the heck is that connected? Well, of course, you've got Odin's ravens with the one and Mamma Mia is a memory game exactly. at its heart. So they both require thought, I would argue. You know, most games exactly. require some sort of brain power. And then Mamma Mia requires memory. memory. So the connection, of course, was memory and thought. Scooter B nailed it on the head. We had some other really fun. Oh. The ABBA uh, connection yeah. was one of the funniest ones that yeah. I saw. <laughs> there were some great posts. If you haven't read them, go read them. Log into the, the spiel.net and go to the forums and check out because there's always wacky guesses yeah. up there. And remember, if you do get the are, – are the winner of the Backshelf Spotlight Connection Contest, you're going to win a set of coveted spiel dice. Dave is shaking them in his hand right now. They are awfully purdy. So c congratulations to Scooter B23. I'm sorry, I have lost your actual name. I know we've met you at Origins and then again at Gen Con, and I feel terrible that I cannot remember your actual name, but I think of you as Scooter B23. Exactly. <laughs> so we'll be in contact soon, and your dice will be on their way onto the Backshelf Spotlight for this week, remembering that there is a, a connection between Stratego and Fox and Geese. Good luck figuring that one out. Classic. Classic <laughs> games this week on the uh, back show. Absolutely. So let's start off with Stratego. Stratego has an interesting history that we're going to touch on real quick before we talk about the game. Let's go all the way back to 1908, when the French woman M. Hermance Eden filed a patent for a game called Jeu de Batille, which literally translates to a battle game with moving pieces on a game board. <laughs> and that only lasted a couple years before it was um, the name was changed to Le Attack. And then in 1947, Dutchman Jock Johan Mogendorf finally trademarked the name Stratego. And it wasn't actually until 1961 when Milton Bradley published the first version of Stratego in this country. So it took quite a few years to get to us, but when it finally did, boy, did it come over here. <laughs> um, Stratego is for two to four, uh, for two players ages eight and up. List for $18. You can find it online for between $13 and $14. Over the years, there's been several different versions of Stratego. In 1997, we had Ultimate Stratego, which allowed four people to play. In 1999, we had Stratego Legends, <laughs> which was the collectible version of Stratego. Amid those, there was just a myriad of things that were based on several different media, movies, televisions. We got Star Wars, Marvel Heroes, Lord of the Rings, Pirates of the Caribbean, Civil War, anime, Narnia, oh and the latest gosh. one, Transformers Stratego. So <laughs> needless to say, they've gone to the well probably a few times too often oh, yeah. on this puppy. Still a classic, That though. being said, though. Exactly. <laughs> underneath all that. <laughs> exactly. It is a classic, classic game. The object of Stratego is the classic, classic 
find your opponent's flag places. Basically, capture the flag in board form. So the game board is a 10 by 10 grid of squares. Each person starts off with 40 pieces, 40 plastic pieces um, on their side of the board. Each plastic piece is double-sided. There's a plain side that faces your opponent so they don't know what the piece is. And then, of course, facing you shows a little picture of exactly what rank that piece is. And the rankings of the pieces go anywhere from the marshal down through the general, the sergeant the minor and down to the lowly scout and spy and of course the flag the cool thing about this is at the beginning of the game you got you get to set up how you want to organize your pieces so you decide where your flag goes how do you want to protect him do you surround him by bombs do you put your marshal right there do you put a spy there who knows it's totally up to you the game plays out very simple on your turn you have two choices move a piece or attack Moving, almost all movement is one space orthogonally. Obviously, there's exceptions. There's some pieces that can move different from that. Attacking is simply, at the beginning of your turn, if you find yourself orthogonally adjacent to an opponent's piece, you can say, I attack that piece. Both people announce the rank of the pieces. The lower rank gets removed from the board. Obviously, if it's a flag, then then you win. So it's really, really easy. Using your memory and trying to figure out exactly what your opponent's strategy is will allow you to determine where their flag is. Classic, classic game. Thought of today as a children's game. Um, marketed heavily to younger kid, you know, younger mm-hmm. kids. It's still a classic game involving memory, and I would argue that if two adults sat down and played this, the gameplay elevates to something beyond you know, a child's game. I still enjoy playing this. There's even a lot of games out today, newer games, that share this mechanic. Um, the one that comes to mind is the Lord of, Lord the, Rings of the Rings Confrontation <laughs> by Fantasy Flight That's Games exactly that is <laughs> absolutely stratego, you know, with, you know, little abilities on, on each. <laughs> exactly. So, classic, classic game. If you haven't played this, play it. If you have kids, go out and buy this. When you can get it for as cheap as 12 13 14 bucks. there's no reason not to have this in your collection. Yeah. Well, it's an easy step up to, I think, war game yeah. type games uh-huh. or even something like chess. Because, I mean, all the pieces kind of move fairly similarly in Stratego where if you if you learn Stratego, it wouldn't be that much of a stepping right. stone up to chess. From there, you've got the grid. You've got pieces that move in sort of predictable patterns and things right. like that. That you're, you're starting. It's like the, the nucleus of abstract strategy games. And you Bingo. can see how other ones kind of, even though it kind of came later than these other games, you can see it as a stepping stone. Kind I, of I agree. <laughs> so... Try out and remember Stratego, which has a funky, weird, twisted, strange, albeit normal for us, connection <laughs> to Fox and Geese. Now, you you claimed, you know, wow, this game is old with, you know, 1900 or something with, with uh, Stratego. How about 1400 wow. with Fox and Geese? Um, a couple items of note. Fox and Geese was first mentioned in the accounts of Edward IV of England, who reigned from 1461 to 1483 but was given the name um, Marls, um, and is nor- normally associated with Nine Men's Morris. Uh-huh. Um, certainly, um, there are some fox and geese boards from earlier. Um, there's actually some that are scratched into stone seats at the Gloucester Cathedral from around the 14th century, which, Excellent. you know, that's, that's really cool, I think. Let's just go right into describing the game. The game is played on a cross-shaped board of 33 points that are joined by horizontal and vertical lines and diagonal lines at certain places. Throughout history, the sort of where those diagonal lines have changed, so I'm not going to describe where they are in specifics because your specific board or one you find might have the little diagonal spots in different places. Um, One player is going to take the part of 13 geese, 
which start the game at the bottom three rows of the board. The other player takes the part of the fox, who can start on any point that he pleases. Now, the weird thing, this is sort of a hunt game, but a hunt game in reverse. The the fox is hunting the geese and trying to eliminate them from the board, but just as much the geese are kind of hunting the fox and trying to corner the fox, which is kind of a, <laughs> a fun little inversion on what you'd normally think of, right. you know, the slaughter of the geese and the <laughs> fox just, you know, having his way. The geese get revenge. <laughs> they have strength in numbers, in other words. So the geese take the first turn. The player can move any one of their geese from its point along any one of those marked lines to an adjacent empty point. So another intersection, in other words. Usually there are holes in the boards. I've seen ones where it's just a pawn and you move the pawn. Uh, move from intersection to intersection, one line's worth, basically. The fox takes his turn, moving exactly the same manner as the geese, and basically the play alternates between the two. Now, the fox can kill the geese, and it's very much like checkers. Um, they can jump over any goose that he has a landing spot following those same lines on the board, and that ge- goose is eliminated from the game. You can do double, triple, quadruple jumps, have a big... Uh, Feathers flying everywhere if you can line it up such that you can take all those jumps at once and eliminate them from the board. Now, the uh, only way that the fox can win is by either eliminating all the geese or eliminating enough of them that the geese cannot win. How can the geese win? The geese can only win if they can hem in the fox in such a way that the fox, when it becomes the fox's turn, cannot move. So you sort of have to corner him or get him into a spot where he can't jump can't move in any direction because you've kind of surrounded him. That's the the basics of the game. I can remember actually playing this game with my grandfather. It's probably, if I think back, it's probably one of the first board games I probably ever played. Oh, that's cool. Because, you know, I can remember him having a little set uh, on his kitchen table and me being very young. And, and I think ours was with the golf tees uh-huh. uh, instead of, you know, nice, because you can find some with nice little fox and geese, you know, wooden pieces right. these days. But I can remember having a whale of a time playing that game. And to me, the reason, the other reason to put this on the back shelf is to show that games like this, games with legs that have lasted a long time, that the kind of recipe for fun hasn't changed for thousands of years. That these mechanics, that these games, people have been playing games and having fun. You know, we you don't we get sort of we probably are guilty as as much as anybody in the world of you know saying, "Ooh, look at the shiny, pretty pieces and things." Right, but. At, at its very core, at its essence, this is a darn fun game, and it has obviously stood the test of time and has given birth to all these other sort of kissing cousin games um, that have come after it. But the, to me, it's it's kind of fun when you sit down to play a game like that to think that, you know, there were people, hundreds, you know, and in some cases, like with Batgame, and thousands of years ago, playing basically yeah. this exact same game that, I, you know, I love playing games that you can trace back that far, and you know that there were people around hundreds hundreds of years ago playing damn near exactly what you're playing just that feeling is so cool yeah the being connected you know to that kind of that fun doesn't know century or or right. boundary in that way that the same kind of fun you know there may be a few games from our generation that people will think back hundreds of years and, and you know maybe it is carcassonne or or settlers or maybe it's stuff we don't even you know we haven't right. played yet but to me having that connection back uh, to, to history is, is really important and fun, and you don't have to have new shiny things always to, to find a lot of fun in, in just the simplest of, of exactly. games. And that's an important thing to, to remember. So remember, Fox and Geese and Stratego have a mystery connection. Send your guesses in to thespiel.net on the forums, and somebody's going to win a spiffy set of new Spiel dice. Yeah, good luck with this connection, boys and girls. 
truckloads of goober. What is goober, you ask? While sages and scholars may debate its subtle nuances, Dave defines goober as either a game with a ton of quality components or a game with really unique components. Now, we're not saying that you should always judge a book by its cover, but the stuff, the goober in a game, can be a factor in having fun. Great goober can make an otherwise average game excellent. Great goober can make an already great game sublime. Let's see what the Goobermeisters have for us this week. And the time is upon us to look at more stuff. Goober to be exact. The game we have in the Truckloads of Goober segment this time is one of those games where it's almost a gimme. It had to be in this segment. There was just no way we couldn't do it. In fact, it's so easy, I think a monkey could have picked this damn game. <laughs> but... As sure as we sit here, if we didn't pick this, we were going to get some emails that were going to say, pick? How, how could you guys not pick that? A monkey could have picked that damn thing. <laughs> so without further ado, I'm Dave, and I'll be your monkey for this trip through the truckloads of Goober. And the game we're talking about is, of course, StarCraft, the board game. <laughs> Published by Fantasy Flight Games. Should be out October. We had a chance to see this puppy at um, Gen Con. It's big. I had to drag Dave away from the, <laughs> the demo table. <laughs> it was designed by Corey Konechka. It's for two to six players, ages 12 and up. Retails for $80. You can find it online for 64 This is kind of interesting because that's only 20% off. And I looked at almost all the major on, online outlets. So, hmm, something interesting happening here? Hmm. I don't know if there's maybe agreement not to do the 30, 35, and 40% that we've been able to find on these big guys. That is interesting. We will find out. But StarCraft the board game is, in fact, a huge, epic, gargantuan, painful um, space exploration and battle game beyond everything you can imagine. Obviously, came from the famous um, computer game. Yes, the, yeah. Exactly. Blizzard, the people who did World of Warcraft and, and exactly. so on. Exactly. So it's, um, it's huge. A lot of people know what it is. But why is it in this segment? Because it has more stuff than you can possibly imagine. Fantasy Flight went above and beyond what they could possibly do. So let's just start. I'm going to take one big breath. Okay, maybe three big breaths. <laughs> okay, monkey boy. <laughs> exactly. So let's start with the plastic figs. There are 180 plastic figs. The figures representing the Terran faction are 12 Marines, 6 Ghosts, Six fire bats, six vultures, six goliaths, six siege tanks, six race, six science vessels, and six battle cruisers. The figures representing the Zerg faction. There are 18 Zerglings, 12 Hydralisks, and six each of the Ultralisks, Queens, Defilers, Scourgers, Mutalisks, and Guardians. And the figures representing the Protos faction are 12 Zealots. And six each of the Dragoons, the High Templars, the Archons, the Reavers, the Scouts, the Arbiters, and the Carriers. That is a truckload of figs. Man. We also have 12 planet tiles, 15 normal navigation routes, and 12 Z-axis navigation routes. The planets kind of look like they're, they're circular, but they have little puzzle piece things, so they're connected with these navigation routes. Some hmm. of them allow you to move between um, planets that are next to each other. Other ones allow you to kind of like warp from one end of the board to the other. Yeah, Pretty cool. cool. There is one con conquest point track, six point markers. There are six faction sheets and six reference sheets. 
So moving ahead to the over 350 tokens that come with this game, we've got 36 standard order tokens, 18 special order tokens, 36 base tokens, 90 worker tokens, 42 transport tokens, 40 builder tokens, 38 module tokens, 12 starting planet tokens, 20 depletion tokens, and 26 resource. Oh, I lied. That's it. The tokens are it. The 20 depletion tokens. Then we move on to the 330 plus cards. 26 resource cards, 108 combat cards, 126 technology cards, and 70 event cards. But wait, there's more. (laughs) Exactly. It slices, it dices. It even does Julian fries. (laughs) There is just so much stuff in this game. It is amazing. I love stuff in games. Fantasy Flight, please keep making these huge games. I just beg one thing of you. Make them good games? One time. One time only. That's all I ask. Make a game with this much stuff that takes an hour, (laughs) maybe 90 minutes, something where I I only have an hour and a half, but I want to open up a game and I want to get out truckloads of stuff, but I don't want to play for seven hours. Love the stuff, but I would love to have a game with stuff that doesn't take all my time. Yeah, you know, that seems reasonable. Exactly. That being said, I'll be buying this <laughs> because I have to have this stuff. The Game Sommelier, or Right Game, Right Crowd. Like matching the perfect vintage with a delicious meal, the Game Sommelier finds the right game for any crowd, age, experience, or personality. Each week, one of us must pick five games to meet a fiendish challenge. Each week, one of us must earn the right, the honor, to be called the Game Sommelier. So, if you remember Stephen's challenge from last episode, it was a challenge sent in by Ron Barnett, and Ron plays a lot of games with his wife. The problem is that she was very picky, and there are certain games that she likes, and pretty much, as far as he could figure out, all the rest she hates. (laughs) So remember, they liked playing Ticket to Ride. She liked playing some card games like Rummy and some others. But when he bought Lost Cities and Through the Desert, they failed miserably with her. So she didn't want war games. He loves war games. Where do you go with that? Where do you find some common ground so they can both play some games? I think I've got some good suggestions here, and ones that uh, might even help Ron slide in some some sneaky things that Yay. look like one thing but are are really another. So I focused on the card aspect okay. a lot because it seemed like those are the car- games that she tended to like more. Excellent. And I went with kind of the rummy theme with part of it. And the other thing that um, she liked was what was that? Perpetual commotion, oh, right. which is kind of a speed kind of game. Absolutely has that. You know, got to do stuff right now aspect to it. So a couple of the games kind of have that. I went with a few two-player games and then a few games that kind of run the gamut so that if they like having people over to play games, they kind of have games that will fit in each category. So um, let's just get right to it. Excellent. Battle Line is the first one. 2000 is when it was released. Reiner Knizia, GMT Games. It's a two-player game. Lasts about 30 minutes. Uh, you have two opponents facing off across a battle line trying to attempt to win a battle by taking five of nine flags, which are little wooden pegs, or three adjacent flags. Um, the flags are decided by placing cards into three poker-type hands on either side of each flag that's contested and determining who's the winner with, you know, there are things like straight flushes, threes of a kind, flushes, 
um, the person that has the higher formation, which is what the poker hands are kind of called, is going to win that flag. So in its essence, it's really just kind of a poker variant, but it's actually done with like ancient war you know, soldiers and things right. like that. So you get kind of a little, <laughs> and it has little tactics cards that add kind of a little bit of element of a war game. But at its essence, it's really, if you know how to play poker, you almost know everything you need to know about playing battle line. Um, so there's number one. That's a huge thumbs up. This game is an awesome game, and I think it fits this challenge perfectly. In addition to that, it just came back out in print, so it should be easily accessible. Big thumbs up. Cool. Um, uh, oh, the, the last thing I was going to mention is that it's actually, with the change theme, it's actually a rethemed version of Shot and Totten. Exactly. <laughs> so you, you can see it's actually been changed or morphed. <laughs> Again, just thought that was kind of funny. Throw that in there. So second game is Mystery Rummy. Uh, 1998, Mike Fitzgerald is the designer. U.S. Game Systems is the publisher. Two to four players, plays in about 45 minutes. Um it's basically a, a nice little rummy variant. Just has a few little tweaks on the rummy variant, that re- but really interesting and creative tweaks, right. I think. You're playing victims, suspects, and scene and evidence card melds. You're trying to build a case against various suspects for the famous Jack the Ripper serial murders. Whichever suit has the most cards played in it when a player goes out is going to be the guilty party. But if all the victim cards come out before the end of the game, then the Ripper might escape giving the player who produced that card a significant point, you know, haul at at that point. There are a whole bunch of additional games in in addition. So if she did like that one, there's the uh, murders in the room morgue and I'm spacing on a bunch of the other ones. There's three or four. They've been very popular, but again, at its essence, it's, it's not just a, um, they haven't just sprayed Jack the River juice over the top of you right. know, Rummy. Um, there are actually some very creative little tweaks to the rules, but you could actually approach and say, well, it's just Rummy. <laughs> you, you can do the sneaky Absolutely. thing with her, but then realize, do the little twist and say, oh, well, there is really more going on than just Rummy. But that would be an easy hook to get, get her into the game. That is another great pick. In addition to the um, other games that are out in that series, there's other games that are very similar to the games in this series that, if she liked, would be very cool. So that's a great pick. Thumbs up. Cool. Uh, Number three is Bucket King. Uh, 2002, Stefan Dora is the designer. Rio Grande Games is the American distributor. Three to six players, so we're moving up into you need a few more people to play. Uh, 45 minutes. This game just suffers from a, a bad theme. Horrible theme. <laughs> it, it's not even that it's bad. It's just that who's going to buy a game about cows kicking over milk buckets? Exactly. <laughs> but if you can get past that, it's actually really cool. It's a card game with a, a very unusual scoring system. Uh, players uh, use sets of animal cards to try to knock over each other's pyramid of buckets. Uh, cards in the hand can be used to either attack other people's buckets or defend your own buckets. But the, the cool thing is it has this sort of cascade effect that if if you're able to knock out some of the buckets low on the pyramid, the whole pyramid starts to collapse in and on itself. There's a lot more strategy to it. Most people are going to look at it and say, oh, kid's game. I don't want any part of that. It is just a fun hoot of a game and is light and doesn't conform to any of the things that you that um, Ron said his wife hated. <laughs> so, you know, she might hate this too, but it's something different. It's a new thing that she could hate. <laughs> exactly. No, this is a great game. Horrible theme. But we played it the one time, and it was great. I can't imagine anybody sitting down to this. Just forget about the theme, and you'll realize how neat of a little game this is. Yeah, I pull this out with my family when I yeah, go, yeah. go down to visit it's, them, and they, they love this game. It's excellent. Third thumb up. Uh, uh, fourth is Zauber Cocktail. 
2001. Arn Beenan is the is the designer. Cosmos is the publisher. It's for four to seven players. Plays they say in about an hour, but I don't think that game has taken that long. Maybe maybe we just have had short games right. <laughs> of it. So um, in Zauber Cocktail, players are wizards collecting sets of ingredients each round. The best collection each round is going to earn points to move your player forward on the board. Cool thing is the board is kind of in the box in right. this game. It has a really cool sort of creative little board built into the box, which is neat. Um, when the magic lightning card is turned up, um, then the game is going to end and the highest score is going to win. It basically has um, similarities to something like Pit, but with kind of a fantasy magic theme right. to it. Um, you're you're going to get your cards, turn the top recipe card up, and then chaos breaks loose with you going, you know, I need three blue schlums. Does anybody have a foreign blat that they can spare? <laughs> and um, since she liked speed kind of games right. and those kind of what I would think of as kind of frenetic, fast-paced games, right. seems like this might appeal to her, and it would be good for a party-type situation where it's, it's very informal. Um, and especially, you might be familiar with Pit already, but this adds just a little bit of extra strategy to, to something like Pit. So there's number four. Four thumb up. This is a great pick for anybody. Again, a good fit for this specific situation. Thumbs up. Cool. Batting a thousand so far, at least with you. We'll find out. With <laughs> right, exactly. Your thumbs don't really count, though. <laughs> True. Unfortunately. True. Um, so the last one, and this is, I'll, I'll admit, is a little bit of a stretch, but I'm going to go Space Dealer. Fairly new. 2006 was the original publication date. Tobias Stoppelfelt is the designer. Rio Grande Games, JKLM, um, and Egbert Spiele are the, the publishers of the game in various countries. Uh, three to four players. Plays in 30 minutes. Exactly. Right. So the game is played in real time at with a 30-minute soundtrack. It actually comes with a little DVD with the countdown, sort of like, uh, oh, what's the Omega Virus? Right. Where it has the, the thing sort of going along the side. Um, you start on your own planet with a power generator and a mine and a dream. <laughs> you're, you're trying to generate goods and deliver them to other planets. You're each going to earn, the deliverer and the recipient are going to earn different amounts of victory points for the game. So it's basically space trading, as the name would imply, space Go dealer. Figure. But the whacked out mechanic in this game, uh, not unlike Tomsk, which we talked about exactly. earlier, it uses sand timers not as the timer for the game, but as the components that drive basically everything that you're going to do. You only have two of them, and you have to apportion them out. Oh, do I want to improve my ship? Do I want to fly my ship somewhere? Do I want to get goods to trade on my ship? Do I want to invest in new technology that can help me do other things in the game? But each time you turn over the little timer, you have to wait until that timer's out to be able to do something else. It's kind of a... It has a elements of the speed game but it also has kind of the elements of a normal strategy game because it's kind of hurry up and wait you flip your timers and then you're like okay now i gotta figure out what i want to do before my timers run out so i can immediately get them going with the the caveat that you have only 30 minutes to play the entire game it's a little bit of a stretch it's a little nerdy much more (laughs) nerdy than the other ones but you might be able to build her up with it to, to this with you know, if you have success with the other ones, it's a little meatier. So I was think I was thinking of Ron as much as I was uh, his his patient and loving wife. <laughs> but there's there's number five. Cool. Well, what I really like about this is thirty minutes. You know, I mean, to play a game like this that you're guaranteed you're going to fit it in a thirty minute slot is really cool. The unfortunate thing is I didn't care much for this game at all. My opinion may not be important in this because it needs to fit the criteria, but um, 
I, I think I would give this a thumbs down. Hmm. That might be my first thumb down. I don't know. <laughs> but but you said it was kind of on the line when you picked it anyway. I, I I think she might find this just a little too wacky and a little too tough. Maybe. But but maybe not. But so that my first thumbs down. Yeah. Woohoo! <laughs> I'll take four out of five any any day of the week. That's that's uh, that's you know okay by me. Cool. <laughs> Now, uh, my, as we just said, you know, your votes and, and stuff are nice, but we need to hear from Ron either on the forums or via email in the next episode. And hopefully we'll set him up with some, some good ones. There has to be some of those that she would really get into. I would, I would think so. I think the first few, I'm pretty confident those are surefire hits and I get a little more, I start reaching a little further out, but, (laughs) but you know, that's fun too. Now, uh, the last thing to mention is I'm not going to give you your challenge until we get to the mailbag, Dave, because it actually has a connection to something we're going to get get into in detail in the the mailbag. So um, I'm going to give you your challenge there, and you'll understand why when we get to the mailbag. Excellent. Mailbag. It's time for you to let us know what you think. Comments, questions, criticisms. Let us have it. So we have some nicknames to award. Had a nice, awesome. nice crop of donors. Thank you very much to everyone who's donated to the Spiel Cause. Remember, if you donate to the Spiel Cause, uh, you get a game-themed nickname. Uh, the the donate buttons are on the left-hand sidebar of our website, which is thespiel.net, and we certainly appreciate each and every penny that goes towards helping us absolutely the, the bandwidth bill down and allows us to do things like go to conventions and, and even buy some games too. So Sweet. we totally appreciate it. So thanks go out to Greg Slowplay Williams. Awesome. Barb Meepalina Jung. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Derek Two Stop Turn Jung. Sweet. And Andrew Collision Die Butler. Wow. <laughs> Poor Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks to Greg, Barb, Derek, and Andrew. We totally appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, you help us keep the spiel rolling on for, for years to come, we hope. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> what is just perfect, unless, of course, it's been diminished? Three words that a cockney would use to offer you a wildebeest. Nine dot game, governor. So uh, now on to we have a poll to resolve. Absolutely, we've had a poll up for uh, the last couple of episodes, trying to find out just how many games people take with them when they go on a short little two or three day trip. And we found out that approximately three percent of our listeners don't bring anything. Wow. <laughs> At least it's a small percentage. Exactly. (laughs) And uh, 29% bring one or two games, 35% three to five games, and 33% six games or more. So that's that's a healthy percent. At least 97% of our listeners bring bring games. At least. Sweet. I I can't walk out the door without bringing games. (laughs) So that was a pretty fun poll. Yep. Now on to... uh the, the big meat here in the mailbag, cool. which is a really nice letter we got. Dave, you want to give kind of the overview, and then I'll, I'll read some extended okay. quotes. Okay, excellent. We got an email from uh, Gregory in Seattle, and basically he was um, had listened to our episode from Gen Con and heard us talk about the new talisman that was coming out, and we had also mentioned something about 
well, we were really happy that it was coming out. We were glad it was a second edition because that's the best edition. But we were kind of upset that they didn't tweak the movement rules because that was kind of always a problem with the talisman. So we thought that, you know, to, to bring it up to date, they could have at least tweaked those. And while Gregory wasn't necessarily upset with that, it got him thinking of um, out-of-print games that haven't been around for a while and reprinting them and making all kinds of changes. And that kind of really set set him off and made him upset. So he sent a great email with some thoughts mm-hmm. along those lines. The, the idea of change for change's sake, or is change a universally good thing right. when it comes to exactly. you know, approaching these new games? Um, so here's a, here's a nice quote from, from this long email cool. that he sent us. I cannot help but wonder at what point redesigning older games becomes like colorizing old movies. I have a collection of games dating from, well, the dawn of human memory, and I wouldn't really want the stuff from the late 19th century up through, oh, about the late 1970s to be revamped and homogenized to please the harsh and narrow preferences of today's shudder geek. Where where it has been done, it sometimes feels like throwing a 50-beat-per-minute drum machine into a Cab Calloway record. Unnecessary, wrong, and not likely to please either. So the question is, at what point does an older game truly benefit from an update? And conversely, at what point is it a bit like complaining that a film like Casablanca doesn't have enough special effects or helicopter chases? I'm right there with you, Gregory. I, I, I do not think that a game that's 20 years old, a game that's 50 years old, a game that's 100 of years old, needs to be changed just to make the current gamers happy. When this game was made, it was made for a generation of people that obviously enjoyed it, obviously considered it a classic. So there's got to be something about the game that is memorable and worth having. The fact that we think we need to change it just to spice it up for today's gamers, crazy. Absolutely crazy. Well, I, I guess I fall much more on the fence on this one because I think there's it's situational. I think there are plenty of games that were classics for a reason, but that doesn't mean that they were they they leapt fully formed out of Zeus's head like Athena, perfect. <laughs> that there's right. plenty of that that you can look at a game and say it's a classic and you enjoyed it, but you can also see it for its flaws, warts and all, and say, hey, I love this game for what it is, but wouldn't it be cool if? That that there's room for both, I guess. I know that's kind of a mealy mouth, wishy washy way of looking at it, but to me, it comes down to the specific oh, game yeah, no. in, in question. I think there's definitely a caveat to my particular opinion, and that's that if a classic old game was just had an element of it that kind of kept it from like leaping, you know, bounds ahead of where it was. Yes. I think changing that would be awesome, not unlike the talisman that we talked yeah. about, just that one tweak, but making, like you said before, a change just to make a change or just to bring it into what you think it's most modern. gamers. Yeah. Exactly. No, no, no. If you're just fixing an element that was always flawed in a game, yes. I, to me, I think my default position comes from the, the source of his question. If you can answer that question with you know con- your conscience being assu- assuaged then you're okay if right. you can look at it and say okay i'm going to assume that it isn't broke so i don't need to fix it so if i take that attitude is there anything that i can do to to make it a little bit better or to do something to enhance the play in some way cuz you know if you think of books or movies especially you know with the rehashes Ugh. i mean i'm so much not a fan of things like you know they got it right the first time we don't need to to mess with it exactly. but i do make allowances for the idea that well if you can view it on its own terms sometimes there are things that make 
some remakes or some right. reimaginings and actually there's, there's better. There's always than the, the argument of being able to bring that material to a new generation of people who wouldn't have had a chance to experience it had you not redone it. Right. I mean, to me, if you think of like television and things like that, look at something like the new Battlestar Galactica, which right. is to me, I mean, I enjoy the old one and it has a f- good place in my heart, but I, I enjoy the new one infinitely more than I did the old one. And if we took that hard line of saying, you can't ever mess with the original, we'd be depriving ourselves of something that's actually really good right. and is sort of a different animal. It's become its own thing. So I want to allow room, wiggle room for those kinds of, you know, maybe that's the one out of ten. And the other nine actually exactly. fall on their place, but I don't think w- without allowing the room for that one, <laughs> you're gonna get re- you're not gonna have room for any. So exactly. Um, well, and Greg Gregory was so opinionated about this, he thought it would be good enough to do a backshelf spotlight. Maybe have one of the games be a game that um, should have never been redone because they completely destroyed it, and maybe the other game was you know. Thank God they remade this game because they really fixed this, and it is now an awesome game. But I think we were of the opinion that it's even cooler than that. Yeah. And I think we can even do more than that with it. (laughs) So that's where I stepped up to the plate and thought, you know, this would make a great sommelier challenge. So um, with with everything that you've heard in mind, here is Dave's challenge um, with this idea of change for change's sake or change for the better in mind. So Dave, let's say you have a friend who's just getting into gaming after having been out of the loop for many years, let's say 10 or 15 years minimum. Rather than dive into unknown waters, this friend wants to try out some of the classics that he remembers loving when he gamed before. But with so many reprints and reissues of these classic games, it's a crapshoot as to know which ones are worth a plug nickel. So your challenge is to kind of come up with a do and don't list. Find a mix of five games that either have been genuinely improved through being reworked or updated, or have been ruined or disfigured by a misguided remake. So in cool. other words, a remakes to try and remakes to avoid. Excellent. Uh, come up with a list of five. It can be a, a mixture. You have to have at least, let's say, one of each type. You know, you can't just go all of one and without <laughs> right. you know, any of the other. Okay. But you have to come up with a mix of, of the kind of do's and don'ts list looking back at these remakes to find the ones that are the, the Battlestar Galacticas. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> As opposed to the, you know, <laughs> Superman, the movie, or, or something right. like that. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's, that's going to be – it might be tough to find – some on one side of that coin, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> um, lastly, we also have a poll that uh, inf- is kind of informed by this same idea. Thanks so much, Gregory. You, you really got yeah. us uh, going, and I think I think we'll get some responses from the listeners on this because I think Absolutely. there's going to be some some strong opinions one way or the other. Exactly. Log, log on to the forums. Tell us what you feel about this. But we also figured we'll put up a new poll that's based around this idea and kind of get some a feel for what you guys are thinking. So our new poll will basically be when a publisher decides to do a new version of a classic game, what do you most want to see from this new title? And your cho- choices will be, you know, do you want to see new graphics and fancy goober in this reprint? Or do you want to see um, do you want to see them tweak the mechanics to update the earlier the earlier quote unquote flaws of the of the game, or do you do you want to see as little change as possible, or maybe you want to see some rule variants for some additional gameplay in the game? I know that's something that I would like to see sometimes. Bring me the old game, but show me some maybe new ways that I can play with the game. And last but not least, is it complete sacrilege to redo the game? In other words. Don't colorize my games. <laughs> so, so those will be your choices. Let us know what you think about um, 
you know, out-of-print games kind of getting a second life. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this kind of wraps up our, our episode on change. We've had <laughs> card games become board games and board games that become card games and old games that become new games. Exactly. All different kinds of change here on episode 39. Um, we invite you to to log into the website and tell us what you think. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Thanks again to Time Well Spent, our sponsor. Um, remember, supporting them helps support us too. So without further ado, I'm Stephen Conway. And I'm David Coulson. So remember, whether it's the roll of a die, the turn of a card, or the flip of a tile, you don't have to play to win. You You just just have have to play. play. So without further ado, I'm Dave and I'll be your monkey.